Hello, everyone, and welcome back. So good to be back here. It has been a minute since I have done an interview, and this is one that I have been excited for for a long time. Today, I have a talk for you with my friend, Dr. Sean Murphy. Sean is an ER doctor, and he practices in Tucson, Arizona. I met him through a friend through mountain biking while I was on my big giant trip. Sean is very thoughtful and we hit it off immediately with our nuanced conversation about coronavirus and its response in the American medical institution. This was something that piqued my interest in him and was something that we immediately found some shared beliefs on. I think you're going to hear more of those shared beliefs today. Sean is very thoughtful. He's a really just a nice and really cool person. And the serendipities that led him and I to become friends are difficult to understate. So I'm really excited to be back and I'm excited to present Sean and his ideas on mixed medical arts for this first reunion podcast just like always this podcast runs on donations only so if you'd like to support it consider donating at paypal.me slash airy in the air you could also venmo me or whatever however you want to put a coin in my hat i really appreciate it um another meat flesh thing that you could do to help it out is to review it on your favorite podcast platform which is likely apple iTunes, something like that. So without further ado, here's a little bit of tunage and my talk with Dr. Sean Murphy. Enjoy. Dr. Sean, thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Okay, so today I want to talk about this idea that we ruminated on while we were riding bikes and hanging out in Tucson, and this is the mixed medical arts. So I thought what was so interesting about your story was that you're a ER doctor who practices pretty much what what I think of as kind of like the tip of the spear of Western medicine. And, but you've also kind of used some unorthodox practices on your own health. And so I would love to hear um, just first of all, kind of what it was that brought you into medicine in the first place. And then I'd love to hear these, um, you know, a couple of these stories that I heard from you directly I'd love to hear about these stories about how you kind of 
cured yourself of an autoimmune disease with some really weird shit and then <laughs> and then um, also how you've used your diet to affect your health yeah yeah well yeah i mean uh this and the high level health is uh a never ending journey you know it's not a it's not a really like a a final destination <laughs> so that's kind of uh how it works but yeah I, the, just uh to go to your original question uh getting into medicine i think uh, a lot of people i guess early in life or think about what they want to do later i didn't really have a strong direction it was sort of one experience that kind of led me into medicine and it was a friend uh a friend of mine in college when I, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. He was a firefighter, first responder. And I just went home to hang out with him for Thanksgiving break my freshman year. And uh, I got to like hang out with him and he was on uh, going and going on calls with his radio and his lights and siren to the station. And, you know, I was like, this guy, he's a hero. He's, he's a hero. I want to be a hero. He, how can I be like him? Like, you know, just sort of, it seems so clear, like he was doing something good mm. and, you know, and everything else, I just felt like, I don't know, is, is, you know, I was in engineering school at the time. I mean, building these mm. devices and stuff. Is it good? Is it bad? Does it really help? You know, some stuff seems to be good. Some stuff seems to be questionable, you know, and this was just like, this is good. He's a hero. He's saving lives you know, he's flying to the scene of an emergency and mm -hmm. intervening. I'm like, I got to do this. This is so mm -hmm. cool. The adrenaline, the excitement. And, uh, yeah, that's what it was my uh, interest in that carried me through. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like a, an experience of what was a nebulous search for something good became so very acute. Yes. So obvious. Hmm. Someone who's hurt, someone who's dying, someone who's who's bleeding there really is not many things in life that have such a visceral reaction inside of us as to like our call towards service yeah that's a great way to put it i like that yeah that's really interesting i just i live in this wonderful neighborhood surrounded by some of my closest friends who all have children now and they're all like adventure athletes and it's funny for me just to see the response in me arise when the child is like going fast mm -hmm. on the bike or like mm -hmm. the child is like up on something tall <laughs> you know and you know me it's like man i'm like i'm like the the i'm like the crazy sports guy and yeah i still have this response of like no stop be careful oh my god yeah yeah, yeah please yeah and so yeah, it's, it's it is innate and it's, I feel like it is somewhere also in that. That's like kind of like the animal parental protective thing, but there's also like a dharmic, there's also a dharmic string that it sounds like you've kind of tugged on there as not just the heroic thing, but also having purpose in your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah. That really hits it too is, is feeling like, yeah, I'm doing something I should be doing, or this is good. This is, this is a good thing. What I'm doing is a good thing. It's just a very simple thing. Um, <laughs> but that's mm. the feeling I got. And uh, so it seemed like, oh, I can make a career. I can get paid to do a good thing. So 
I'm going to do that. <laughs> wow. That's, it's amazing as I, just as I even allow myself to imagine your call to do good things and to be held in the popular culture as someone who does good or is a hero or any of these things, there's almost a part of me that's like wants to play devil's advocate that like, well, that's the problem with like police. <laughs> that's the, like the, the same drive that would have you as a humanitarian become an ER doctor because you want to help people is like, that's such a delicate balance that we all have, like helping, you know, it's the same yeah. thing in the example that I gave of like, okay, like there's this child that I really love that I want to protect. But like, right. if I instill too much fear in the child later yeah. in life, it'll like, so like, how do we actually care for people? I yeah. feel like, I feel like now we're actually touching on the thread here of what this episode is actually about. And this is kind of like the essence of what I noticed in you was there's like, there needs to be a much more nuanced look at how we care for each other. And I think that that's what I saw in you and how you talk about medicine was it wasn't just a pill for an ill and it wasn't this other thing. And it also wasn't, it wasn't like a totally Eastern perspective. It's like a, let's take every piece of wisdom we could ever get our hands on and try to integrate it into a more holistic way of seeing this thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, hey. Maybe that, that's a well. realization that maybe should have come 45 minutes into this conversation, but it's four minutes into it. So you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> but I guess, I guess to, to kind of start there and to build this case backwards, I would love to hear this story of your, um, and I can't remember which it was chronologically, whether it was the, um, I think epilepsy or autoimmune disorder that you came across and you've kind of healed yourself of, but tell us these stories. Uh, sure. So, so, uh, yeah, the, so firstly was, uh, dealing with this autoimmune disorder, uh, which was diagnosed as mixed connective tissue disease or MCTD, um, which is just a simplest way to think about it as a type of similar to lupus, which, uh, you know, as a, condition that at least some people have heard of, uh, antibodies to RNA and DNA, and it causes stuff to get swollen and painful and stuff. So, um, when I was 20, I was a super healthy guy. I was in school and this is after I kind of thought I wanted to go into medicine and, uh, out of nowhere, just like joints started hurting really bad, mm. you know, to the point where, you know, shoulders would hurt so bad. Couldn't even do a push up. you know, knuckles would just be swollen and painful in the morning elbow would swell up and I couldn't really extend it. I have to kind of hold it at my side, just out of nowhere, seemingly. Uh, and, uh, my mom had a similar condition. So I kind of knew that it was probably something rheumatologic or autoimmune. Uh, and so uh, I went and saw a rheumatologist and, you know, they measured some labs and they were like, yeah, your body's really inflamed and you have these antibodies and uh, you don't fall into a specific category, so we call it mixed connective tissue disease, which is, is interesting in terms of now how we're learning about how inflammation and autoimmunity manifest. You know, we think about it as specific diagnoses, but it's really something uh, broader and how it affects each individual than you know, 
just that's what manifests as what we call a specific disease. But um, anyway, yeah, so that that's how it got started. I mean, you know, basically, you know, I don't know anything about medicine at this point. I don't know nothing. I just say, okay, well, why, why, why did this happen? And his answer is basically, we don't know, but uh, what we ought to do is put you on some medicine to suppress your immune system. And I was like, okay, you're the doctor. And so I started on some immune suppressant uh, medicine, uh, Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, which has gotten some <laughs> recent press because of its controversial possible effects with COVID. But anyway, I started on uh, Plaquenil and I took that, you know, dutifully twice a day for for probably about five years. Wow. That's kind of how that got started. So it sounds like, hey, I'm hurt. And they say, yeah, it seems like you're inflamed and you're, it sounds like no shit. My elbow is swollen up. Thank you for telling me that. Um, and that's, um, and then just how you described their diagnosis of it, where they just say, well, we actually just call this a mixed thing. It's almost like, a, it's almost like, it sounds like they have a diagnosis for something that they actually, they just like use a diagnosis for something that they actually don't know anything about. Why does it happen? We have no idea. Yeah. But yeah. that's the diagnosis. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so if, it, if it's this perfect constellation of things, then they can say, oh, okay, that's rheumatoid arthritis. Uh-huh. Or if it has these features, like, oh, that's lupus, or that's MS, or that's, you know, whatever, undifferentiated connective tissue disease. It's apparently a different thing. But it's like, if you don't fit that cluster, they still want to lit- name a label, uh-huh. which, you know, it helps maybe if they're trying to do a study, you know, they have, you know, they, they want a defined population, you know, but, but this, you know, that what it really means is, is, uh, is a little unclear, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, you took the hydroxychloroquine for five years and then what happened? Yeah. So that's the kind of the aha moment, which sort of changed my perspective on medicine generally was, you know, I saw a rheumatologist, I'd follow up, I'd see him every year. And, you know, I'm just always like, why, why, why? I'm a healthy guy. I exercise, I eat really healthily. I, you know, I was eating basically pescatarian diet and, uh, super active. I was on the rugby team and, um, blah, blah, blah. But I was sitting in med school then, you know, fast forward, uh, I was second year medical student, still taking my Plaquenil twice a day. And I'm sitting in lecture and this uh, and the, this immunologist was talking about how, uh, the United States and Western industrialized countries have a lot more autoimmune disease, allergies, and asthma than other countries like India or, or Africa or South America. Mm. And this has been known for 20, 30 years. And it, uh, I forget the name of the research, but he gave it a name of the hygiene hypothesis that clean societies have dysregulated immune systems for unknown reasons, but basically we're too clean, you know, too much, uh, Clorox wipes and, uh, antibiotics and hand sanitizer and stuff. And, and the toilet flushing dirtier, so effectively all the time. What's that? And the toilet flushing so effectively every time. Yes. Re- reliable flushing of the toilet. Uh, similarly. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that, to me made so much sense. And I think it makes sense to almost everyone. You know, I, you t- 
I had to, even if you have no medical background, almost everyone gets that concept. You know, it's surprising you know, when you say, yeah, we're too clean as a society. People are like, yeah, totally. You know, like kids need to play in the dirt and get outside and we need to be, I mean, you look at it, I mean, when you look at any indigenous culture, I mean, we would say, you know, or, you know, people would say, oh my God, it's just filthy, you know, their lifestyle and that you know, things are dirty, not savages. Like, yeah, but it's like, that's actually normal. Like yeah. it's normal to eat shit with dirt on it and like to be around poop and be around bugs. And, you know, it's like, that's, that's normal. Yeah. This is abnormal being mm -hmm. clean all the time and it's constantly bathing and, you know, having your poop like flushed away from, you know, this is all abnormal basically. Yeah. And so there's a lot to it, you know, it's just, there's not just like one thing, you know, it's all kinds of things that, you know, from the, from the moment you're born, you know, going through the, the vaginal canal and being exposed to all those bugs versus having a C-section to once you're a little baby, like what kind of stuff you're around in the environment? Like, do you play in the dirt at all? Do you get soil? on yourself you know to and when you're an adult i mean you, your immune system can get dysregulated with certain foods can cause inflammation and, mm -hmm. um, so it's like it's a lot of stuff it's complicated but the hygiene hypothesis kind of nails it that it's this it's this over cleanliness that is you know at the root of it okay so there's this aha moment that you have here and I remember in Tucson, you described the hygiene hypothesis that is essentially the reality that our immune systems don't actually have enough to do. Like they evolved to have so much to do that our immune system was constantly dealing with pathogens that we were eating and breathing and all of these things. And now we live in such a clean world that our immune systems are idle and are looking for things to do. So they end up attacking our own bodies, which is an autoimmune disorder or disease. Yeah. Okay. So you're in class, you have this aha moment. Tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, naturally, like, you know, again, like I'm a sec, I don't know much about anything. I'm just a second year student. And I hear that. And it's the first time that anyone has ever told me why I might be sick like I am. Mm. And I'm like, there's an ex there could be an explanation. I just, mm -hmm. I was just told basically I was defective and uh, I will be the rest of my life. And so this pill will help me not feel as defective, but nonetheless, I am irreversibly and permanently defective. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I think anyone, you know, who has ever suffered with a similar disease can relate that that just doesn't feel right. And mm -hmm. it doesn't feel good. I don't want to be defective at well, this reframes in the light that, uh, and some some research in that body of knowledge of the hygiene process actually suggests that uh, some people with autoimmune disease, their, their immune system is actually quite robust, and it mm -hmm. was, it was, it's quite active in a beneficial way. That that if you were placed in a situation that was really filthy and dirty and nasty, you would actually thrive, and you're meant for that, and you could mm -hmm. handle that, and you could handle situations where you be around a lot of dirt and, and worms and things like that. So, uh, anyway, so that, that reframing was like, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. This makes sense to me. Like I actually feel good about myself. Like I'm not flawed. I'm not mm -hmm. defective. Like I'm actually like a healthy human being. That's just 
in an environment that mm-hmm. my body's not adapted for. So, mm, so then I'm like, I just dove in and read as much as I possibly could as I'm up to date and PubMed, like reading as many articles as I could about the hygiene hypothesis and what it could be. Is it bacteria? Is it viruses? Is it worms? Is it, you know, is, do I need to eat different food or what? And, uh, I, you know, obviously there's a ton to it and there's not one thing, but the, the most interesting thing I came across was this whole idea that removing specifically worms, parasites from our gut, uh, just over the past 100, 150 years had directly has had an impact on the incidence of these uh, diseases mm-hmm. and a multitude of different diseases, not just one. Uh, and not in a completely isolated and single explanation way, but on a population level, it's undeniable that just that one thing, killing worms, basically parasite removal and eradication of parasites from the human gut, both in the United States and in studies looking at migration and deworming campaigns in, uh, in Africa and things like that, that has an impact and it will lead to an increase in autoimmune disease. And then I was like, okay, I need to get some worms. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, That's amazing. So I don't want to go too far into the weeds here as to how you got the worms and yada, yada, but long story short, you decided to experimentally treat yourself with worms. Yeah. I decided this makes so much sense from not a population health level, from uh, an immune system molecular level, and just from a, you could call it a spiritual level, but mm-hmm. just a level of, uh, you know, this, it makes me feel better about this condition and that there is actually a rational explanation that's not just you're mm. defective. So yeah, yeah, I got second year of med school. I found uh, a group of a community of uh, people online who were self-treating with worms and had uh, some, there were some vendors and other things, uh, you know, basically people who weren't going to wait for the clinical trials to come in. And they're saying, you know, certain species of parasites are mostly pretty much harmless. There's no downside to just trying getting some, seeing what happens. If it works good, if not, you can just take a deworming pill and they're dead. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try it. I went uh, to a, a particular vendor in uh, England, got some uh, hookworm. And uh, yeah, fast forward a year later, felt unbelievably better. Like for the first time in, you know, uh, six years, like was waking up without stiffness, pain, and it just continued to improve from, from then until I was able to uh, taper and discontinue taking the, the Plaquenil eventually. Wow. And these worms enter through your skin, correct? Yeah. Just a patch on the skin and bandaid on your skin. They're, they're microscopic. You can't see a squiggly object, but, uh, you, they're essentially dosed underneath a microscope to a specific number and put on a bandaid and just plopped on the skin for a couple hours and you throw the bandaid away and that's it. There you go. And you're cured. Okay. That's amazing. I love this. In med school, taking a pharmaceutical to not really fix, but to like just deal with the symptoms of 
a nebulous autoimmune disorder that has a name, which is a ruse for it being misunderstood. Right. And you get a British hookworm, an African hookworm imported to England. Yes. I remember. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a whole story on NPR, actually. You can listen to the guy (laughs) tell his story. Okay. It's amazing. Okay. And then there's another story that you told me about. What was the other? Oh, the epilepsy. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how else you're experimentally been treating yourself outside of Western medicine purview. Yeah. So, so yeah, the, uh, hookworm, uh, therapy I've been on, yeah, over 10 years now and that stabilized that I haven't been on any medicine at all. And so, uh, then, uh, about two years ago, this is is a pretty recent thing. I started getting, uh, weird episodes of, uh, deja vu, which is a weird thing to say, but super intense deja vu, like uh, just a weird, intense feeling like I've been wherever I, I was before mm-hmm. along with a very strange, like spicy smell, even though wow. you know, I could be doing anything. I could be riding a bike or talking to a patient or sitting at home. And, uh, I had no idea what it would make of it. Uh, I, and I, I'd feel a little dizzy, a dizziness, a weird smell and, mm. uh, yeah. And a deja vu. I had no idea what to make of it. I, I actually talked to a bunch of friends of mine who are doctors of all kinds and, Ask them what they thought it was. They were like, I don't know. That's really odd. I mean, maybe it's a psychological thing. Uh, I, I thought I, I even saw a primary care doctor, which I hadn't seen in a long time, ask them about it. And they were like, basically just said, I have no clue. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, you know, wow. that's really weird. I've never, you know, and then I thought after a while, I'm like, maybe I'm just having GERD, like just acid reflux. And it's, I'm smelling stomach acid and then it's making me dizzy because my esophagus is inflamed. And so I went to, this is, this is a good uh, way of, of looking at Western medicine too. I go to a, a gastroenterologist. I'm like, I think I might be having GERD. I get dizzy and I get the smell. And he's like, sure, let's do an endoscopy. <laughs> Basically just, you know, that's all they do is endoscopies and colonoscopies. That's how they make all their cash. You know? Is that, what is an endoscopy? Oh, so they they uh, they give you a little propofol. They make you sleepy, and they put a camera down your mouth and look at your esophagus and your stomach. So they just uh-huh. they just scope you basically. Let's take a look. Yeah, and they look. I go, I you know, I do the whole thing. I get a ride, and they scope, and they're like, "Your GI tract is totally healthy. There's no erosions. There's no sign at all that you've been having reflux, and that there's no way that this explains your dizziness and all this uh-huh. stuff." So anyway, I. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's not that I basically gave up. And then like, literally I was sitting at work one day at a computer charting on a patient and like one of these episodes happened again and they're starting to happen like every day. And I like just typed in the symptoms on Google, ask Dr. Google. And it was like temporal lobe epilepsy. I was like, what? And then I, you know, then I went on a physician reference and like did a deep dive into the symptoms and it was like exact mesial temporal sclerosis temporal of epilepsy causes uh seizures that don't cause you to lose consciousness complex simple simple partial seizures where you get the sensations you can get 
hallucinations of your olfaction, you know, smell hallucinations, dizziness, deja vu. And it was just like exact. I'm like, what the, what the fuck? I booked an appointment, saw a neurologist. He's like, yep, definitely. No, it's, uh, that's uh, temporal lobe epilepsy and we should start you on seizure medicin- me- medication. And I was like, well, again, <laughs> I'm like, well, well, why? Like, what am I doing? Is there something that could be going on? Is there anything I could change? And he's just like, no, but take some Keppra. I'm like, you know, basically take Keppra and take it the rest of your life. And, you know, I talk to patients with epilepsy that say, uh, you know, that they feel weird. It changes them. You know, it's, it's like similar to psychiatric medications, which, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Hey, if you, if you need it, you know, some people are having debilitating seizures, like yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, but I was like, I mean, I'm, it's nothing else I could try. And he's like, no, I had heard about the ketogenic diet. Keto diet was invented in the 1920s for children with epilepsy that wasn't responding to medications, even hardcore shit like phenobarbital and stuff that they were giving them. And I th- the original observation was that, and I think this goes back to like the time of Hippocrates, which is if people didn't eat, they would stop having seizures. Mm. You just just fasted. fasted. Just fasting seemed to treat the seizures, but then when they start eating again, it sees. And then eventually we discovered, you know, this is from ketosis when, you, when you're in a ketotic state and your body's using fat primarily as energy, your brain is bathed in these ketones that have this powerful anti-epileptic effect and it's beneficial effect on your nervous system. And so I asked the neurologist, I'm like, can I, can I try this first? I mean, just, you know, basically just eat more fat, you know, more avocados and coconut and salmon. And he's like, I mean, you know, go for it if you want, you know, but you know, it's really hard to adhere to, you know, not a lot of people can do it and most people don't stick with it. I'm like, I don't, I think I could probably, it doesn't seem that hard to me. I, I like stuff that's fatty and, you know, I mean, fatty is even a, you know, in sort of an endearing term in the modern vernacular. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, I started off on a fatty diet and within a week, total resolution of the seizures without anti-epileptic medication. Another instance in which it was like, wow, like there's all this stuff out there, all this stuff that fringes, you know, there might be stuff in the literature about it, but it's just, it's not really uh, being used to the maximum extent it could be. It's really interesting hearing this because it's not just, it's not just a treatment side. You're also, talking a lot about like the emotional, the social experience that it is to interact with a Western doctor Mm. that runs into the limit of his or her own knowledge Mm -hmm. on the subject. Mm -hmm. And you're essentially kind of like cul-de-sac, you know, Oh, could I try this other thing? Well, not really. Like, is there anything else? No, not really. Like, yeah. The cul-de-sac of the practitioner's own knowledge. So I'm curious. I'm curious how these two experiences of curing yourself of these difficult to diagnose things, until you use Google apparently, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, how, the, how this affected how you see medical practice at all and how it affects how you practice as a doctor? 
That's a big question, man. That's it's a, a big, big question. question. <laughs> but yeah, I guess, I guess it's that uh, two things are one, uh, you can't expect doctors to take responsibility for your health, I think. And even as a doctor, I can say that, 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 that health, your health is a journey and you can enlist the help of a doc maybe to help you in specific mm-hmm. circumstances, but they don't really, they're not really interested in taking responsibility for your health. <laughs> uh-huh. They're really there to fit a specific, you know, to see if one of a finite number of pills, surgery, intervention, or, or, or education will fit into a model of what you're telling them. And if so, they'll, they'll gladly give it to you. But as far as exploring the, what it really means to be ill and, and, and why your illness is manifesting beyond, beyond, you know, if you have strep throat, okay, sure. I mean, that's pretty cut and dry, but you know, to, to get into the deeper weeds of why you're ill and what you can truly do to heal, uh, you can't, you just can't expect them to, to do that. And I, and a lot of people rail against Western medicine because that we don't really, uh, cure people, a lot of illnesses that could potentially be cured or, or go into those deep explanations or explorations of patients. But, but I think we shouldn't expect them to, <laughs> we should, there's other things There's communities of people, this online communities is, you know, there's, uh, resources other than, you know, your, your Western doctor that should be maximally explored. And then, you know, maybe use them, bounce things off of them, or if there's questions that might be helpful, but I, you know, I think that they just simply won't do that for you. (laughs) So that you're saying essentially it's a misconception of what a doctor is, what a healthcare system is. Yeah. At least what, at least what is modernly available. Yeah. Uh, You know, I, I think in, in, in ancient, in, in the different era and different, um, eras of our evolution as a species that could have been different that, that, you know, as medicine man or uh, a shaman might offer a lot, a lot deeper healing in certain uh-huh. regards, uh, you know, or, or develop really, you know, these really intense relationships with the patients. And, but I think that's because that's not the case. Like and I, I'm just, you know, we can just be aware that that is not the case, <laughs> but there are many other disciplines that are, that people are now re-exploring like shamanism and, and naturopathy and, uh, diet, diet, you know, dietary medicine that are doing them. So the doctor isn't the end all be all like it's just one little piece in this like mm-hmm. system of healing and, and, and modalities that are available. So, you know, just can't rely on them you know <laughs> it's just yeah. for specific things yeah but but there's so much more going on that should be a part of this uh, you know mixed medical arts uh-huh well i mean here here we are so why don't you just tie this into what you see as the as what it is is mixed medical arts what is the what is the thing well i mean you know, uh, I, I mean, well, I guess it also comes down to like, what do you think? Well, like I, Tess, you said that. What do you think? What do you think science is like? What, what would you? Th- what do you think of science? Like, what is science? I, I, even just just that generally. 
I mean, I think of it as a process. It's purely a process. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I look at it too. Yeah. And like, we've, we, when, when I, when, when I don't know, I don't know if you get the same thing, but when I think science, you think like something really dry, really clinical, really sterile, really, uh, almost alienating in a way. I don't know. You know, do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Um, and also, I, I don't know, I kind of have a currently bad rap on the whole thing. How so? I don't know. I think that science is the new religion that people have just like given up their entire uh, critical thinking. They actually have given up their own science for like an external science of like mm-hmm. the, 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 the top of the pyramid of scientists and health professionals and all of this stuff and they've they've given up the process of science in their own life of what they can test and observe and and record and repeat and um, they've given up their own inner sensitivities like in medicine we talk about you know like what it what your digestion feels like on any given day we've just given up those sensitivities and basically if something radically wrong happens then we just give it up you know we have to go to this the tip of the hierarchy to see, you know, what's wrong with us. We need something external instead of embodying the scientific thing as a very organic process that we can moderate in our own lives. Man, we couldn't be more on the same page, man. (laughs) That's exactly, exactly how I feel too. And that is exactly what I think most people's experiences. And I, I so appreciate, you know, to, using the analogy of digestion or how you might feel with certain food and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, 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 and expecting to go to a GI doctor and say, Hey, I feel like shit. And, and, you, and they're like, okay, here's some, uh, dicyclamine, you know, like take this. It'll, it's like, you know, it stuns your intestines so they don't hurt. And it's like, but are you going to expect them like to get into the weeds of maybe it's FODMAPs, maybe it's certain types of fiber that don't sit well with you. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you need to keep a log, you know, and, or do an elimination diet. Like they're never going to, they're not going to do that. They're not going to even, you know, they, they probably have 10 minutes to see you anyway. Yeah. You know, so yeah. And, but that's, that's, but what you're talking about, like you said, that's science. Science is just testing a hypothesis, getting an idea mm-hmm. and then seeing if you, if it holds true. Yeah. It's I, not reserved just for the scientists and the doctors. No, and not. And, and if anything, the centralization, consolidation, and uh, you know, uh, of of knowledge has been a disaster. <laughs> has been a terrible disaster. I mean, how many examples have you looked back at? Like totally misguided uh, canon of truth when it comes to health or nutrition mm-hmm. were handed down from the USDA or whoever, and it mm-hmm. just turns out to be a total, an utter disaster. But because everyone was just singly focused on on them for truth like it had these reverberating effects just a just a quick example is the whole uh low fat diet uh, mm-hmm. um recommendation which was uh you know there's a lot of different publications and stuff on it but uh essentially kicked off by a misunderstanding about what was causing heart disease uh which was kicked off by 
politicians and food groups and, and essentially demonizing fat as being the unhealthy thing, <laughs> which is like, if you talk to your grandparents or people, you know, just a generation before, like that was never, it was not an issue. There was, you know, conventional wisdom prevailed that you should, you should avoid sweets and like too much sugar was a cause for diabetes and obesity. And suddenly it was fat is the bad thing. And now, now you're the food guide pyramid. Like, you know, most of your diet should be Kool-Aid and, and, and flour. And <laughs> I mean, the AHA actually said you should drink Kool-Aid and, uh, and eat flour, you know, in the nineties, that was their recommendation. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that, where it, once the trust is given to these centralized authorities, the, the potential for harm becomes enormous because mm-hmm. now everyone's listening to these people and <laughs> Even the data that that they're going off of could be easily interpreted in a different way. But if you're if you're not doing that, then you know, it's just it can be a disaster. So, okay, so if we could repaint a utopia where the American medical system is instead of what we've outlined, it is this new mixed medical arts. What does that look like, and what does mixed medical arts in practice look like? Well, I, so, uh, I would say is, is the most important thing of all is, uh, is everyone taking a step back and having some goddamn humility (laughs) that, uh, you know, like you said, that, that Western medicine doesn't have everything figured out. And we definitely suck at a lot of stuff and we've actually screwed people up (laughs) on a population and health level with our hubris yeah. and our, uh, like you said, the, the, our pseudo religion that, mm-hmm. you know, science is the new religion and you have to follow what we're saying because it's the science, even though the science, I mean, you know, I don't even, everyone knows that a lot, of, a lot of publications are absolute bullshit. Industry sponsored studies are everywhere and studies on inter- industry sponsored studies as we know intuitively show that they conclude whatever the hell they want <laughs> about yeah. the thing they're studying, mm-hmm. because that is relatively easy if you just design the study, right? So the idea that there's this thing that's called Western medicine and it's the best thing ever. And we, everyone just needs to all the other traditions and intuitive knowledge and self-exploration and, and uh, other modalities just need to die off or, you know, get on the train with Western medicine, I think is just, uh, reflection of of hubris and a uh, lack of humility. So even just that alone, I think, could usher in an era of mixed medical arts. <laughs> and what does that look like in from a practitioner standpoint? Well, just that just taking a step back and saying, if a patient, and the simplest example, if a patient uh, brings up something like, "Hey, I, why do I have type two diabetes? Like, do I have to take insulin? Should, do I have to?" Uh, take metformin and or glipizide or whatever the newest diabetes drug is like, uh, you know, then it, it, the conversation doesn't end at, well, I mean, you could try some dietary stuff, you know, look online, but I, I don't really have time to go into it. Anyway, you know, instead of saying, yeah, you know what, uh, there's some really good naturopathic providers, for instance, that uh, can dedicate a lot of time and effort into working with you on, on, finding a new dynamic for yourself and your diet and your way of life and your, your eating habits 
And, uh, I, you know, because I'm a primary care doctor and I only get to see patients for 10 to 12 minutes, I, this is not the right space. And, I, and these other uh, providers like have a lot to offer. And so let's work together with them. Um, that, that kind of thing where there's a collegial uh, and sort of cooperative uh, synergy between different disciplines that might have mm-hmm. more time to spend with you and yeah. actually more to offer for a specific disease. Uh-huh. And but we have respect for each other, and we have the ability to work together. This is interesting because we started the conversation, and I noted that the the potentially positive desire to help people can be hijacked and can be a net negative when it is an egoic one that positions ourselves to be the thing that is helpful or to to be the cure to be the curer to be the healer to be the healer as opposed to being a node in the network of healing that this person needs right oh i like that analogy a lot the node in the network that's good yeah because if a practitioner's mentality is that they're going to heal you then a they're going to be pretty adamant about treatments and they're going to likely manipulate the knowledge that they have to fit what it is that you're experiencing, the symptoms, right? Like when you ask the doctor, well, why is this happening? And they're like, we don't know, but you need to take this and you need to keep taking this and for the rest of your life. And so that's kind of a, this is the cul-de-sac. This is the, this is the cul-de-sac that I was referring to. And like you're saying, a call to humility inside of a practitioner allows them to disidentify. This is essentially like the, we can talk about this in any discipline in life, whether you're a boyfriend or a doctor. It's like if you have the idea that you are going to be the thing that heals someone, you're going to be misled by that calling. Whereas, you know, and that's the same in conversation when someone's crying, it's like, am I going to fix them or am I going to sit here and just watch them cry and listen to them and like hear them. Right. And we, and we both know like what is vastly more healing there. Like, are you going to try to fix them or are you just going to listen to them? Cause people just want to be listened to at the end of the day. And that's radically more healing. Yes. So, and it comes with so you have to have so much humility to even step into that space where you could listen to someone because you have to take yourself out of the position of this person is crying and I need to fix them. Right. So I love this idea that that because what you're kind of laying out is actually where I guess when you initially think about mixed medical arts. I kind of think of it as Sean is going to be an ER doctor who integrates Ayurvedic wisdom and Chinese medicine and naturopathic, holistic, dietary, all these different things into his own practice. And in a way you do, right? Because I remember one time I called you, you're like, yeah, I just got off a 24 hour shift. And I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, this pregnant woman came in at midnight having a panic attack. I said, what'd you give her some diazepam? And he said, no, I just brought out the ultrasound and I showed her her baby's heartbeat and she was fine. So <laughs> my man, like, like what a, what a beautiful and holistic and 
and clever way to deal with what was happening. So it is that, it is that Sean is, and, and I, here I am, I'm helping you tease out what mixed medical arts is. No, I appreciate it because, yeah, no, no I very much um, appreciate it. So it, it is both that as a practitioner, you employ as many modalities as, as humanly possible that cover as wide of a scope of the human experience as possible. Yeah. Right? Because obviously a pregnant woman coming in could be having some kind of chemical imbalance that would lead her to a panic attack mm -hmm. that would necessitate diazepam or some other anti-psychotic. Yeah. And, but at the same time, there's something much more, much less invasive that might do the trick here. Yeah. Um, so as a practitioner, you want to be able to do those things. But also what you just pointed out was that you have to surrender to being a node in the network of healers and know the limitations of your own knowledge and your own space. Like literally, it might just be that the hospital you work in, you're limited in what you can treat and what you can do and what you can recommend. And it might just be like the limitations of your schedule. It might be the limitations of your training. It might be the limitation that there's any of these. But the mindset of being the healer is very detrimental and being a healer in the node of healers and a support for this person's health journey as opposed to the cul-de-sac of their health journey, the destination of their health journey. Mm -hmm. Is that's a radical that's a radical deviation from where we've been for a long time. Yeah, I agree. 100%, yeah. And so I love this idea that it's essentially mixed medical arts is every practitioner not only because I I love the idea that we can all specialize. Like I yeah. love the idea that there's a gastroenterologist, there's a ER doctor, there's a orthopedic surgeon, all these different, like, cause like how many times are you going to like fix a broken ankle before you're like really good at fixing broken ankles? And it's like, if I break my ankle, I want the guy who's like fixed a bunch of athletes ankles yes. to like fix my ankle. And even though I like you, Sean, it's like, like just point me to the guy who knows the shit, right? I ain't going to fix your ankle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so, and so although we should be specializing knowing the limitations of your specialty and knowing how potent other people's specialties can be and, and being on the same team with them. So I, I love this idea and I think it's even just a holistic way to look at it that we would integrate all the different modalities that we could into our own um, repertoire as practitioners as well as respect the repertoires of other practitioners and being humble to our own limitations and all these things. Yeah. I, I, I just have to say like one example that is just to be fair, you know, on the flip side of it too. Uh, like I've talked to chiropractors before, which I, I'm, I'm totally cool with chiropractic. In fact, I, I low back pain is a huge problem, you know, across nations and the U S super common uh, problem for people to present to medical care for. And uh, we have s such abysmal offerings for them. Uh, physical therapy is one of the best interventions, but uh, a lot of doctors just put patients on painkillers, uh -huh. you know, and it will be nice. So I often say, try a chiropractor, you know, that might be of great benefit. And, and there's some literature to support that, but also there's very little harm 
like come from chiropractors. But then I've heard chiropractors say, you know, everything can be healed with a spinal adjustment. You know, all, all health problems are essentially from spinal subluxations and there's some root in, you know, the founder of chiropractic basically said that. And, and that's kind of where the hubris manifests in that modality. Like, mm-hmm. well, no, I mean, come on, you know, it's like not everything is from a spinal subluxation, but I still think chiropractic is fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. same with acupuncture, you know, some acupuncturists will just say Western medicine is horrible, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I would never go see a doctor. You know, I've, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and, and it's like, but and why, why does it have to be adversarial? Mm-hmm. And I understand that, you know, people have been burned, they've been mistreated or you know, gotten addicted to opiates or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now there's a jadedness, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, and that is, that needs to be addressed yeah. too, but yeah. everyone needs to come up with that collaborative, uh, sort of mentality. Yeah. I've made an analogy for a long time that you always want to aim for the bullseye and you don't want to be pushed in your aim. You don't want to be anti anything because if you're anti anything, you're actually, your aim is getting pushed to the far side of the target. If there's something that's far right and you want to push away from it and end up far left, you're actually missing the bullseye. And so often the truth can be actually right next to something that's wrong. And so if you push too far away from what's wrong, then you actually miss the truth. So I like that. I think that the point that you make of having some kind of adversarial mentality as a practitioner can push you way off of the mark of, of the bullseye of, of humility and understanding and knowing your place. And I think that realistically, Sean, I think we've laid out a really nice couple of things here. I think one of the things I, will take away from this is that your health journey is yours and you don't hand it over to anyone. You don't hand it over to a doctor and a good doctor will notice that you're trying to hand it over and acknowledge that pretty <laughs> quickly. Hand it back. <laughs> hand it back and be like, I right, actually, this is yours. This is yours. Yeah. So no, true. Well, doctor, the term doctor just is uh, the etymology is educator. You just, mm. it's a t- teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why a PhD, you're a doctorate. You're, you're a teacher of that subject. Mm-hmm. Essentially, a doctor should just be a teacher of health to mm-hmm. teach you what they know and to pivot if that knowledge ends up getting overturned. And then mm-hmm. you ultimately decide what to do with that. Yeah. And it's also sad for me as we talk about this because the idea that a doctor would have hubris, uh, the idea that a doctor would misidentify with their role as a healer you know, the roots of that are so deep and rooted in childhood and the way that we are compelled to achieve and fix and, and when um, I have so much sympathy for the doctors who are still trying to play those things out in their practice. Yeah, because it's ultimately going to be unsuccessful. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's a treadmill. And it's interesting because as we've talked about this, it's almost like you're the doctor and I'm not. But actually, as we talk about this, I actually kind of like, I have in the last number of years kind of softened into the reality that there is some part of me that is healer. 
Absolutely. hundred percent. Even, even just, um, in conversation with people, even just in my pretty profound ability to hold space for people's negative experiences or any of these things. That so I've really leaned into that. So powerful, my friend. Yeah, it is. I think we all have that. I think we all have that. I think that's a part of all of us. Healer is like a part of all of us. Just like protector is a part of all of us where the child is up on the roof about to jump yeah. off and you're like, ah, we have that. Yes. Like it's innate. Like healing is innate in us. It's like it's in our bodies and it's in our being, like how we can show up. And so I think the mixed medical arts is not just for doctors, even though the doctor thing is pretty important and we need to kind of address the hubris that is in the Western medical paradigm. But it's also mixed medical arts is like, I don't know, it's almost a call for me to embody the healer that's in me and move into right relationship with that. Both specializing in the things that I'm good at, expanding my knowledge into the things that I don't know, and also having a deep humility that knows my place and that disidentifies from the misconception that I am the healer, the hero, the fix. Yes, I like that, man. No, I, as you're saying it, what is most, what's, what really strikes me too as profound is, is uh, reaches into sort of collective mental health too. That, uh-huh, absolutely. Uh, you know, as a culture, to be there for someone, anyone in your life, mm-hmm. your friend, uh, your parent, your cousin, just to just to hold space for them to be there is is a healing modality, uh, and it's incredibly powerful that you know, given your relationship with that person, it could never be substituted by a, a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and uh, it comes down even simple, just positivity. Mm-hmm. You know, you could essentially see yourself as being a force of of promoting mental health and well-being to everyone in your life just by being positive and holding space for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, and not trying to fix them and not trying to fix them, Yeah, you know, and just, just that alone, if everyone took a, just a small part of that responsibility upon themselves, imagine the difference we could make in each other's happiness, well-being, mental health, uh, just with that, without any yeah. training in how to do I it or what that. to say. I love that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've realized in the last couple of years is that a trained psychotherapist is a great asset to have in your healing repertoire, your support system. But it's also not available to all of us, and it's also not available to all of us at the right time. I find that my own therapist, it's like, sometimes I need therapy right now. But then at Wednesday at noon, when I have therapy, I'm just like, I'm fine. Like this is a waste of my money and time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the realization is essentially that all of our relationships need to be radically more therapeutic than they are. hundred percent. And yeah, giving and receiving. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think that does come down to what we've outlined here of like understanding our role and also understanding that we're not the thing that fixes people, that people heal themselves. Yes. That things suss out, that we're not the healer and that we're, we want to be a node in a network. So it's important to be able to 
maybe encourage or recommend a different modality, a different person, a different uh, technique, a different mindset, a different thing. And also at the end of the day to just listen and to be humble servant. Yeah. yeah it's all really, it's all really good stuff here. And I really, the thing that I, I think that changed in this conversation for me when I came into it, I was thinking that mixed medical arts was somehow external in how the Western medical paradigm was broken and how it might fix. And I think we did address that, but I also think that mixed medical arts is really something that we all have to embody and kind of step up into whether it's how we think of our own health journey, but also how we support each other in all of our health journeys. Man, I, Absolutely love that. And I, I myself didn't even really fully comprehend that until you just, well, we just collectively articulated it and came, came to that conclusion. Uh, something you just said too, that really resonates is uh, how we view, view health and illness too. And just to share, just to share a point going a little deeper into that. Uh, I looking back on the, you know, the illness, that I, you know, suffer with in my twenties and then more recently with epilepsy. Um, there's another way to look at illness too, which is, uh, a, a journey, you know, yeah. a challenge. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what fun would life be if, uh, there was nothing to overcome, no challenge, no struggle, no, no interesting, uh, curve balls and surprises, you know, people go to casinos to be surprised, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's, um, so, but, uh, the point is, um, I, I, I absolutely treasure the illness that I've been able to go through, you mm. know, to deal with. I look at it like a blessing. It caused me to learn things and to grow and to talk to so many cool people, even to travel the world. And, you know, I've a whole nother more to go into on that, but these things can prompt us to go on incredible journeys that are meaningful and, and inspire yeah. us to connect with others. And, yeah. and so even illness itself to just look at it like it's purely something bad that should be eradicated. It's meaningless mm -hmm. and that eventually we'll get rid of it is misguided. And when somebody is ill, <laughs> that might be just what they need in their mm -hmm. life for in a deeper sense to, to realize mm -hmm. their full potential or to, yeah. or to go through the journey that they need for themselves. But always assuming you you don't actually always know what's best for someone, even if, mm. if even if they're ill, assuming that the best thing for them is to be well. Mm -hmm. So you know, if they ask you for help, by all means, help them however you can. But don't assume that whatever somebody's going through is not what they should be. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I think we just cut out the the topic of our next talk, which is the meaning of illness and suffering, which I think is a very, really critically of critical import here in the place that we are right now, especially as we've had such an incredibly ferocious response to COVID and death. And as you know, we both have read Stephen Jenkinson and the death phobic culture that we live in. Yes. I think that's yes, really important. Uh, yes. And, um, I think what you just touched on reminds me of the thing I've been saying for a while, which is how is it that you know when you're on your path? You couldn't get off it if you tried. So yeah, like your autoimmune disease, your illness, your suffering, yeah, that's on your path. Couldn't, you must be in the right place because you 
are right where you are. <laughs> I like that, man. I really do. Well, Sean, it's been so great, man. This is um, this has been super fun. I think we've kind of even I've learned about, it and I think we've sussed out more of the idea going forward. Yeah, totally. hundred I totally agree. Okay, well, thanks so much for coming on. I think that we're going to be back here real soon. Let's do this again in, in two weeks and we'll talk about the meaning of illness and suffering. I think that's a that deep sounds, rabbit hole we can both share. Sounds fantastic. Can't okay, wait, man. This has yeah. been super awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. Really appreciate Sean coming on. And like we said, yeah, we're going to definitely do another recording here shortly. If you appreciate this podcast, help it out by sharing by making a review and also consider donating paypal.me slash airy in the air thanks so much for being here see you on the next episode folks <laughs>